Nathan is going to read for us, if I could just open my Bible, from Luke chapter 19, verse 11 to 27. Luke chapter 19, starting at verse 11. While they were listening to this, he went on to tell them a parable, because he was near Jerusalem and the people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. He said, A man of noble birth went to a distant country to have himself appointed king and then to return. So he called ten of his servants and gave them ten miners. Put this money to work, he said, until I come back. But his subjects hated him and sent a delegation after him to say, We don't want this man to be our king. He was made king, however, and returned home. Then he sent for the servants to whom he had given the money in order to find out what they had gained with it. The first one came and said, Sir, your miner has earned ten more. Well done, my good servant, his master replied, because you have been trustworthy in a very small matter. Take charge of ten cities. The second came and said, Sir, your miner has earned five more. His master answered, You take charge of five cities. Then another servant came and said, Sir, here is your miner. I kept it laid away in a piece of cloth. I was afraid of you because you are a hard man. You take out what you did not put in and reap what you did not sow. His master replied, I will judge you by your own words, you wicked servant. You knew, did you, that I am a hard man, taking out what I did not put in and reaping what I did not sow? Why then didn't you put my money on deposit? so that when I came back, I could have collected it with interest. Then he said to those standing by, take his miner away from him, give it to the one who has ten miners. Sir, they said, he already has ten. He replied, I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But as for the one who has nothing, even what they have will be taken away. But those enemies of mine who did not want me to be king over them, bring them here and kill them in front of me. Well, thank you very much. It's good to be able to share God's word with you this evening. Let's see if I can make this work this time. Turn it on. It always helps, doesn't it? Right, we're starting a new series this evening called Summer Stories, and based on the parables in Luke's gospel. Uh, and over the next few weeks, I'm not sure how many, uh, we'll look at different parables, some of them better known uh, than others. Uh, the One that I'm looking at this evening is possibly the parable of the ten miners. Uh, When I was talking to various people over the last couple of weeks, uh, which of the parables that I have got to to look at, uh, so the parable of the ten miners, and uh, all the inevitable jokes came out. One's about birds. You know, there's birds you can talk to, um, uh, you, you can train to talk. Uh, and then probably the most common one was either Welshmen or miners with little lights in their hats. Um, if you say, you know, thinking of Welshmen being miners, it probably indicates you are of a more senior age than most, because I don't think very many Welshmen have been miners for quite some years now. But there we go. It's not that a sort of thing at all. 
just going to go through uh, a, a, a few basics, first of all. Um, the parable of the ten miners, these are things just worth knowing before we get into the details of what it's all about. Uh, a miner was a coin, it's worth about a hundred drachma, uh, which may not mean very much to you, but it works out at about three to four months' wages for a labourer. I'll let you do the sums and work out how much that equates today. Uh, and it may depend on what your experience of salaries and wages are as to what you reckon three months. So. But a, a, a minor was a coin, and we'll read in the passage that uh, the, the servants were given a minor each. So given a, a sum, I'm going to say it's somewhere around about five or six thousand pounds. Uh, of labourer's uh, salary for three to four months. You may think that's a bit stingy. It probably reflects my working background. Um, but uh, So th that's what a miner is. And then the word servant in the uh, thing refers to someone who is bonded to his master, a bond servant or even possibly a slave. These are folk who uh, were you know, required to stay with their masters. Uh, they couldn't just walk away if they were fed up with it. They couldn't go and get another job, and they could, and they would be punished for disobedience. Just bear that sort of thing in mind as we go through the story. Uh, something else that's worth knowing is the reason for this parable. Nathan's already told us this. The, the people thought that Jesus' kingdom was about to appear. Now, what's the background to that, and what does that mean? Looking around, I think most of you know that uh, Jesus... Uh, is going to return at some point in the future. And when he comes, he'll be coming as the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. And this is going back to promises made in the Old Testament uh, through the prophets, uh, where uh, God had promised his people, the, the Jewish people, uh, that one day he would establish a kingdom that would last forever. And that his anointed one, the Christ, the Messiah, would come and be the king. Now, at the time that Jesus came to earth and, uh, and he was talking to these people, uh, the, the idea of the, uh, the people of, uh, of you know, Judah being a separate nation with a king over them uh, was a bit of a joke because uh, they were ruled over. They did have kings, but the kings themselves were subject to Roman rule. Uh, and the, the kings that they did have were really like sort of puppet masters. Um, no, not puppet masters, they're puppets themselves. Uh, think of puppets, we don't see them on television these days with strings attached and someone working them and so on. And I always used to think that the baddies in, in, uh, in um, the, uh, International Rescue, is that what it was called? Uh, what was it? Thunderbirds, yes. Um, uh, that somehow if you wanted to defeat them, you just got a pair of scissors and cut their strings and they'd all uh, flop. But the, the phrase came to uh, be used to speak of rulers who really weren't able to rule themselves. They were always under somebody else, being controlled by someone else. And that's what uh, people of Jerusalem and Judea uh, had to put up with. They were ruled by the Romans and they wanted out. They wanted to be set free. They wanted to get their kingdom that had been promised established. And when Jesus came, people started to say, was 
is this the, the, the anointed one, the Messiah, the Christ? This is the one that God had been promising would be coming? And, uh, he, uh, and they thought, well, if he's coming, maybe he's going to bring in the kingdom and they set them free from the Romans, kicked them out and so on. Now, Jesus had got this following, people thinking maybe this is the king. He's heading towards Jerusalem, the capital city, the center of power, and they're thinking maybe the time is coming. It looked so uh, propitious that this was the time when the kingdom of God would commence. Now, the thing is that that's not quite what was going to happen. They had this idea of a great glorious king coming and setting them free, but Jesus had already told them on numerous occasions that actually when he was in Jerusalem, he was going to suffer and to die. And a week after this story, or a little bit over a week, he would be nailed to a cross and hung there until he was dead. And all these people who had been following would have been thinking, it's, it's a failure. It's not going to happen. It's gone. They've, the bad people have, uh, have triumphed. And Jesus is telling this parable as much as anything else to reassure them that actually it is all going to happen as God had promised, that it's just not the way in which the popular imagination had been uh, looking forward to it. So that's what that parable is, uh, is about. So tell them they would have to wait some time longer, but it's still going to happen. The king is going to come and the kingdom be established. It's going to have to wait some time longer. Uh, and we are still waiting. We could look back into uh, uh, other parts of the scripture and it talks about we don't know when Jesus is going to come again. He's going to come like a thief in the night. Uh, Peter writes that in 2 Peter chapter 3. We don't know the time of his coming. And, uh, you know, th th we are warned that all sorts of people would come up saying, oh, he's over there, he's, he's come. He, and I rem I've, I've told some of you this so many times, you can probably join in at this point. But I remember going to St. Paul's Cathedral uh, one evening an interesting service. It was celebrating the 10th anniversary of the musical Hair. Don't ask questions about that one. Um, but in one of the side aisles afterwards, there was somebody dressed in white. And there was a little group of people hovering around him and a slightly bigger group of cathedral officials looking very worried and wondering what they should do. Because this guy was saying he was Jesus. He'd come back. I have to say that the vast majority of the congregation totally ignored him. And on that particular occasion, I'm glad they did. I would rather hope when Jesus does come back, the congregation of St. Paul's Cathedral in London wouldn't be standing there saying, oh, we'll ignore him. But I suspect uh, that the way, the manner of Jesus is coming, as we'll see, is very different to somebody just dressing up in a bedsheet. We're still waiting, and that waiting can sometimes be very hard. It was uh, difficult for the people in Jesus' day. They had these hopes and expectations, and a week or so later, they were dashed. What's going to happen now? Jesus has gone. He's dead. We've seen him buried. Three days later, he comes back to life, and maybe hope is rekindled. The king has come back to life. Maybe the kingdom is going to come in now. And then, having revealed himself to several hundred people, he ascends to heaven, and he's gone. They can't see him anymore. 
and thinking, what's happening? Is the kingdom being forgotten about? Parable is to help us to understand that everything isn't under control. There's a weight, but actually it's for a good uh, purpose, that it's all part of God's plan. Sometimes knowing is such a relief. You know that uh, whilst it may be difficult while we wait, why is it difficult? It's hard being a Christian sometimes, isn't it? Sometimes when you're being teased or even persecuted when your job's being threatened when people are putting so much pressure on you to be something that you know is wrong it's hard to stand apart from the way that the world is and then there's all the temptations that the world brings it's hard isn't it to see friends going and doing things which actually you think that could be quite good fun but you know that it's not godly, it's not right. Or maybe it's just not appropriate for, uh, for you at this particular point because you should be giving more of your attention and more of your devotion and so on to the things that really matter. It's hard, isn't it? As the years go by, uh, you can grow a little accustomed to Christian things. Your, your heart grows a bit cold. And you think, oh, if only that Jesus came now and set me free from all of this. We have to wait. Jesus is telling this parable to reassure the people, to challenge the people, that actually his way is better. Um, Just go quickly through the key parts of the story and then we'll see what their significance is. A nobleman was to go away to be made king. That was not a strange thing. It sounds a bit odd to us because normally when we have a, a king or a queen crowned in this country it's in this country that that he or she is crowned and people all go to westminster well not everybody but you know quite a substantial number of people turn up at westminster to either get into the cathedral or the uh, the, sorry the abbey or they line the streets and watch the wonderful coaches go past and so on in the roman empire people would go away to be made king Uh, they may uh, be inheriting a throne uh, from their father or something like that. But in order for them to be made king, they had to go to Rome in order for the emperor to appoint them. And they would have been used to that. So the idea that a nobleman has to go away to me be made king was quite common. Herod the Great did it. His, son, his sons, I have to say, all went to uh, contest uh, the, the, the throne. Herod, made a, uh, Herod the Great made, I think, three different wills naming different people as his successor, as king of, uh, of Judah. And uh, they weren't particularly happy with the final choice, which was a guy called Archelaus. I'll say a bit more about him later. N- none of these folk were particularly nice. And it wasn't a popular move. Um, and we see in verse 14 that there were some folk who did not want, you know, it says they hated him. And uh, saying that they went to petition uh, the the emperor, as it were, not to appoint this guy, the nobleman, as a king. Um, That, again, was something uh, that they were familiar with. This guy, Archelaus, he was the son of Herod the Great. Uh, He was a very unpopular man, and a a delegation went to Rome 
to uh, tell uh, to ask, don't appoint this man as king. He was a cruel man. Um, it wasn't a popular move. Anyway, the story goes on. He gave uh, the, the nobleman in the story, not Achilles, the nobleman in the story, gave each of his ten servants a minor each and told them to put the money to work. In other words, take the money, use it to make more money. Uh, which, uh, And then he went away to be made king. And then he came back, and he was appointed as king, unlike Archelaus, who... the, the, the um, he was appointed as a ruler, but the emperor said, I'm not going to appoint you as king until you show that you are worthy of it. And he never was. In fact, he was deposed a, a few years later. This guy came back as king, and then his servants, verses 17 to 26, gave their account of what had happened. And then uh, finally in verse 27, uh, his enemies received punishment. Uh, at that point, you remember what it said when Nathan read it to us? how uh, you know, he said, right, those people who did not, my enemies who did not want me to be king, bring them to me and kill them in front of me. And at that point, something about our Western democratic, slightly liberal uh, inclinations goes, whoa, that's a bit harsh, isn't it? Can you imagine the Tory leadership com uh, contest? You know, come, come September, one of them's going to win. Now, I don't know which one you want to win or whether you don't want any of them, but just imagine that whoever won, when they take the, the, the throne in Downing Street, goes out onto that lectern thing outside the front door and says, right, bring the other one here and kill them in front of me and all their supporters. You can't imagine that happening, can you, really? Not, not even in current Westminster politics. I don't think we... We're, we're, we're quite that bad. But this sort of thing was quite common. One of the reasons why this guy Archelaus, I, I mentioned, was so unpopular was that before he went off to Rome to try and be made king, he took up, his father had named him as ruler, so he started ruling. And there'd been all sorts of things going on that Herod the Great had upset folk. He'd put up a, a golden eagle above the door into the temple and uh, the Jews felt that was blasphemous and so in the dark of night one night they got some axes and they chopped it down and the people responsible were put to death and there was all sorts of you know, ramifications from that and Archelaus then came on the scene and one Passover uh, people started protesting about the way in which these folk had been uh, treated and they appealed to him, and he just thought, oh, well, wait until I've been making, I'll sort out, just calm it down. Uh, but they, they, they weren't. He, he said, I, I'm, I'm sympathetic, but he went off and had a meal, and the protests continued growing and growing and grumbling, and the sound of mourning was heard throughout the city, and he got cross. And he, so he, he sent some officials to try and talk them out of it, and then... When that didn't work, he sent a small group of soldiers and the, the crowds stoned at them. And then he sent in the whole army and 3,000 people were, were slaughtered. Um, and he went back on his word. Fancy, a leader going back on his promises. Mm. There's That's the sort of thing that regularly happened between leaders and their subjects in those days. 
So when Jesus talks about uh, a ruler who had his enemies brought before him and killed in front of him, we are slightly shocked by that. But there would have been people in that crowd, it wasn't very long afterwards, within easy living memory, people in that crowd who would have seen it happen, where a ruler had killed his opponents. And, you know, some would have been there, actually saw it happen, maybe seeing husbands or wives or children or parents or close friends slaughtered. A lot of families, even if they hadn't been there themselves, would have had folk that they... It would have sent a shiver down their spines for totally different reasons, not just a bit of disgust that we might feel, but it's personal for them. So, what does this all mean? What's the meaning of the parable? Uh, Jesus was to go away for a while. That's a very simple thing to, to say. They expected him to take up his kingdom there and then, but he was killed. The scriptures tell us. Way back into the Old Testament, you read passages like Isaiah 53. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was, uh, he, he was killed for our sins. To take our punishment on the cross. He d it was for him to, to, to come uh, and suffer and to die for us. And then he rose from the dead having been crucified. And then he ascended into heaven from where he is going to come again. Uh, Jesus was to go away for a while, but he will return. And his kingdom appear it's on the day of the Lord, as this, this, the, the Bible describes it. One day he will come again. And it won't be in secret, like or, or slightly hidden away in the corner of a London cathedral. But he'll come in such a way that every eye will see him. Mark in his gospel, I pulled my bookmark out, just let me find it for a moment. Mark in his gospel uh, describes, or Jesus tells them, uh, what is going to happen on that day. Uh, Mark chapter 13. Um, in those days, the sun will be darkened. This is verse 24. Uh, the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, people will see the Son of Man, that's another name for Jesus, coming in clouds with great power and glory, and he will send his angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heavens. I don't think you'd miss that, would you? You know, you just pop into the house for a moment, oh, he's been and gone, just passed by. The whole heavenly bodies will be shaken, He'll come in power and glory, and we're told every eye will see him. He will come in such a way as there's no doubting that he will come. We don't know when he's going to come, but he will come. I mentioned earlier on about Peter describing it in chapter 3 uh, of his second letter. He says, you must understand that in the last days, that's the period in which we're living, uh, it's, it's a long period of time, 
you must understand that the scoffers will come scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say, where is this coming, he promised. Ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. Uh, Moving on, uh, verse 8. Do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise. Now, some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. So that's the reason for the wait, for the pause in proceedings. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, unannounced, unannounced. Uh, unpredicted, when he comes, you will know about it. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire and the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. He will come. He will come as judge. He will come as king. And no opposition will stop that happening. In uh, In the parable, in the same way that We picture the nobleman going off to be made king. Jesus has gone away for now. Yet strangely, he is still here. But bodily speaking, he has gone away. There was opposition. They didn't want him to be made king. But the opposition didn't stop the nobleman being made king in the parable. And no opposition is going to thwart God's plans now. No matter what people say, no matter what they do, no matter how evil this world becomes, no matter how anti-Christian governments and uh, media and so on can be, nothing is going to stop the purposes of God. Whilst he was away, he calls his people to serve him. He goes to the servants and gives them these coins. Um... They are called uh, to account when he returns. And we've read through how, uh, uh, what, what happened there. Although there were ten servants, we're only, t- only told about three of them, and they're, they're fairly representative, I guess. There's one guy being given uh, Amina, and he gets ten more. He's, that's pr- a pretty good rate. You wouldn't get that on our present interest rates in the banks today, would you? Uh, you'd have to wait years and years and, and probably, I, don't, I haven't done the sums, but an interest rate of naught point naught something isn't going to uh, make a tenfold increase very quickly, is it? £5,000 becomes £50,000. That's quite incredible, isn't it? And the king's response to that, well done, faithful servant. You've been trustworthy. You've been faithful. Because you've been trustworthy and faithful, I'll put you in charge of ten cities. Wow. Now, you stop and think about that. When the king, the nobleman as he was then, gave them the miners, miners, they didn't. He didn't say what rewards there would be, what... They, they were just servants. They may have been slaves. They wouldn't have expected anything. He is king and he rules and he holds them to account and he is so gracious to them. I'm not quite sure where we are with the, the, the slide, Ashley. 
Oh, yes, the faithful ones, that's right. Okay, move on a bit. Uh, they were commended and rewarded. Um, both, you know, very much for, uh, unexpectedly uh, for, uh, uh, rewarded well and unexpectedly for their uh, faithfulness. They didn't earn this money. This was given to them. Uh, they uh, sorry, they, they didn't earn the reward. That was something given, them to, uh, given to them by the king, given to him by the king. The gracious gift. It's so something of the graciousness of the king. I'm sure when Jesus got to this point in the, uh, in the story, and the crowd might have been thinking of Herod and Archelaus, they thought, oh no, not them. They wouldn't have done so. They wouldn't have given control and all the benefits that go with it of 10 cities to slaves. Might have given them to their special friends or something. It's, it's quite a remarkable thing, isn't it? It's a bit like, say, one of us being summoned to the, see the Queen, and the Queen saying, oh, I'm going to go away for a few, uh, for a few short time. I, I'll, I'll give you £5,000 and uh, see if you can make a bit more money, would you? And then comes back later, how much have you, you done? Oh, I've turned it into 50000 Oh, well done. Take charge of Wales. Other places are available, you know. That's a quite attractive, Steve, really, isn't it? Yes, yeah. Um, that's the sort of thing that they were doing, that he was doing. So gracious. It wasn't uh, a, 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 a wage that he, he was paying them. It was something he gave as an appreciation, given in grace. And that is the nature of Jesus as king. He pours out his love and grace upon his people. The faithful people, uh, they were rewarded graciously for their faithfulness. They weren't rewarded because of uh, the, the amount that they made, although the reward seems to be proportionate to the amount that they made. But the king needn't have given them anything. They were slaves, bondservants, but he chose to do so. The Bible indicates that there is some sense of uh, a, a proportionate reward for you know as, as we go to heaven. You see it in mentioned in one Corinthians three, and I think we need to be very careful about how we interpret that because when it's not explained what that actually means in practice. You know, are there cities to be awarded in heaven? I don't know. The Bible uses picture language to describe things, but it's not necessarily to be taken entirely li literally. I think we have to be careful uh, about how we apply this sort of teaching. I've read commentaries uh, over the last uh, week or so ago and uh, on this passage, and, and one chap, very respected commentator, very helpful commentator, absolutely adamant that the, <laughs> the task being assigned to God's people uh, being referred to here is evangelism. You know, and it's based on the number of converts that you make. 
I'm not sure about that. I'm quite certain that evangelism is part of the stuff that w we are being asked to do. And to be faithful, we need to be doing it. But sometimes, when I mean, you think back of some of the Old Testament prophets, someone like Jeremiah, how many converts did he make? Much of the time, he preached the word that he'd been given. He calling the people to repentance, and they persecuted him for the message. They turned their back. But Jeremiah was faithful. And I'm sure when he stands at the throne of God, God will say to him, well done, good and faithful servant. I've got someone like uh, Jonah that John was preaching about the, the, the other week who was told to go and preach to the city of Nineveh, capital city of their enemies, not, not perhaps the easiest place to go to. And he, he didn't want to go there. He didn't like the Ninevites. And he didn't want them to come to repentance. And so he tried to run away, you know, the story involving big fishes and so on. God brought him back, told him to go again, a second chance. And so he went there and he preached the message. And we read that everyone from the king down to the beggars in the streets listened and they, 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 they turned to God. Was Jonah pleased? No, he went off and had a sulk in the desert. I knew that you were a gracious and merciful God and that you're going to forgive people and turn to you and grumble, grumble, grumble. Out of Jonah and Jeremiah, who won the most converts? <laughs> who was the most willingly faithful? I don't think that uh, rewards are going to be on offer for the number of converts we win, but it is based on our faithfulness. And that covers every part of our lives. Jonah did the task that he was given in the end, but one can't say that his attitude was particularly exemplary. I like Jonah because it makes me feel that someone else has treaded from trod the same path that I so often tread. I get things wrong. I sometimes grumble and complain when I should actually shut up and be more gracious. The scripture's full of people who can be so encouraging for all the wrong reasons. Why am I saying this? When we come to think about rewards in heaven, it is reward enough for us to be there in the presence of God. And that's where our hearts should lie. I think Paul, let's go back to one of my favorite books uh, when he's writing to the Philippians, his attitude about uh, what, what his ambitions and his goals are. Uh, he, he writes personally, chapter 3, having just written about how in many ways he was actually a very upright sort of Jewish person keeping the law as far as possible, he then confesses this in verse 7. Whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. I consider them garbage that I might gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him 
in his death and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenwards in Christ Jesus. Is he after benefits? Is he after gain? Things he's saying that what matters most to him is to know Christ to know his grace and his mercy. That's where his focus is. The Bible, you know, this, uh, and this parable tells us that there, that, that there, are, uh, uh, there is an element of reward, but we shouldn't necessarily be concerning ourselves so much with that that we become, in a sense, materialistically, oh, I'm going to do this because I'm going to be a bit further, the nearer the front in heaven or something like that. Be faithful to God. Be faithful to Jesus Christ. Do that and let the consequences look after themselves. Trust yourself to Jesus and don't allow worldly thinking to, uh, uh, to, to influence even the very way that you approach Jesus. It's by grace that we are saved. The benefits that we have, so much of it is just described as things that are given, not deserved. We don't read of uh, any wages of our earning anything in the kingdom of God. It's all gifted to us. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. The wicked one, described as wicked in the parable, uh, was disobedient and careless. He was faithless. But the reason he gives doesn't add up, does it? He's saying, well... I, I, you're a very hard master and you, you reap what you don't sow and, so, and I was afraid of you. But the king turns that around on him and says, well, if you really believe that, shouldn't you have at least done something? I'm sure many of you have worked in places where you didn't get on so well with the boss. Maybe harsh, maybe uh, intolerant, maybe over-demanding, you know, putting pressure on to do things which you weren't able to do. I won't ask you to stick up your hand because they may be watching on, online. Um, but I'm sure many of us have had that experience. And wh what do you do? Do you say, oh, I'm not going to bother. If you're going to be like that, I will do nothing. Well, that's a good way of getting the sack, isn't it? I think most of us would buckle down and we'd try and do the very best we could because he was a ho horrible man, because he was demanding or something like that. Remember, these guys didn't have the option to say, Right, I've had enough, I'll hand him a notice and go and get another job. Even, though, even that isn't as easy as it is to say it. This man, it's a bit like the enemies of Jesus Christ. Don't want this man to be king. Why did the, the enemies say that? I don't want this man to be king because they didn't want to come under his rule. That's why people don't put their trust and faith in Jesus Christ. They may come up with all sorts of good-sounding uh, arguments about, does he really exist, and so on. Well, no, actually, the real reason is that they don't want to submit to someone else. They want to be king of their own lives. And to come <laughs> to Jesus Christ means to say, he's our Lord. 
See what a gracious God he is. See all the blessings that he gives us. He's not like you know, the, 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 the wicked man, the wicked servant. He's got his understanding of this guy completely wrong. You know, reaping what he doesn't sow. He may have reaped what he didn't sow, but he gave it away freely to those who didn't need it and didn't deserve it. That is our God, gracious in everything. And then finally, he will deal with his enemies. Judgment is a fact. When the day of the Lord comes, Jesus will appear and everyone will be called to give an account. Books will be opened and the account of our lives will be revealed. Those who have put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ will be saved by grace, not because they deserve it, not because they've done something so wonderful that, well, you know, they've earned their place, but because they have trusted in Jesus Christ. The wicked will be punished. That's justice. We like justice, don't we? Except when it's applied to us sometimes. Someone breaks into your house and steals everything. You would want them to be caught. You would want the police to deal with them. If someone was to attack you in the street, you would want to see justice done. And the justice that is being done on that final day covers all the bits that have been missed by the justice systems in different countries across the world. It's, it, it's, it's even covering all the bits where the justice systems in the different countries have themselves been unjust. Everything is detailed, but the biggest injustice that needs to be uh, dealt with is people's attitude towards the king, the king of kings, the lord of lords, the god of gods, the one who has created us and made us to be what we are, human beings made in the image of God. And there's that call that comes through all of this, looking forward to that day when Jesus Christ comes again in power and glory, to bring the salvation that he has promised to us all, uh, all who put their faith and trust in him. He's also coming to judge the world. And that needs to lie at the back of our minds all the time that we live in the sight of God. So what sort of people are we? Are we like the enemies who don't want Jesus as king? Are we a bit like the unfaithful servant who took his minor and just wrapped it up in a piece of cloth and hid it. Didn't even do what he should have done in order to keep money safe, which is to bury it. Just wrapped it up. I'm not going to do anything with that. Or are we people who are faithful? All of us, whichever category the parable might put you into, have the same need, and that is to draw near to Jesus the saviour of mankind, the one who gave himself to suffer and to die for us. Those who are his enemies should call out to him, confess that they have tried to go their own way without the king, and they've rebelled against the lawful king's rule because Jesus is king, even though he hasn't come, come back yet. He is king of kings and lord of lords now. A bit like the man in the story he made king in far-off country, Rome perhaps. He was king from then on, 
long before he got back home. Jesus is, is king now. And he rules over all things. And he is the one who makes the laws. And he is the one who calls everyone to account. If you are one of those who needs to turn to Jesus, do so whilst there is time. His weight allows you to do so. Come to him. He loves you. He will pour out his benefits upon you. He'll bless you with eternal life in a far, far better place than, than we live in now. And it's all a free gift in Jesus Christ. And all you need to do is just trust him. Repent of being the sort of person you are. Repent of saying, I don't need a king. I don't want he, uh, Jesus. And say, Lord, forgive me. If you've been unfaithful, in that particular story, we're not told exactly what happened to that unfaithful servant. In a similar story that uh, Jesus told on a, a different occasion, the equivalent person was cast out into outer darkness. We're not told about this guy. And, but those of you who've been Christians any length of time will all know that there are times when our faith fails, when we don't do the things we should do. We sin and we, we fall. And what do we do? We go back to Jesus, the one who forgives us our sins, the one who died on the cross for our sins, even the sins that we've committed now, today, whatever, since we became Christian. He died for us, and we go, <laughs> we go to him, ask for forgiveness, ask for help and strength to go on. And there are those who come into the category who might, I, I suspect that most of us feel that no matter how long we've been Christians, that there's something that is unfaithful in us. Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. But even if you are currently in a good uh, place, and you're living in great faithfulness, watch out, because you could stumble and fall. And Jesus is ready to pick you up and to forgive you as you humble yourself before him. What a strange thing. Being faithful can so often lead to us being proud. Something weird there, isn't there? But Jesus died for our sins. What sort of people are you? Let's pray, shall we? Lord, we do thank you and we praise you for your wonderful love and goodness. We thank you that you are the King of kings and the Lord of lords, that one day you will come again on the clouds with great power and glory and we will see you face to face. You will wipe away the tears from our eyes. You will make us new and restore us, Lord, that we might have new bodies that are not tainted by sin, that you pour out your abundant blessing upon us. Lord, we see the picture language that describes what heaven is like and feel the conscious that the mere human words that we use just are not fast enough and powerful enough to describe the reality that they seek to portray. Lord, we know that however it will appear and whatever goes on there and you know, whatever social circumstances, we know that it will be good and holy and pure. And above all, we will see you and be in your presence without any hindrances, without any sin, 
And Lord, we long for that time to come. Come, Lord Jesus, we pray. Lord, we thank you for your grace and mercy to us sinners. Forgive us all our sins, past, present, and future. Help us, Lord, to keep our eyes fixed on you, to run the race that's set before us until finally we reach that day when you come again. Lord, hear our prayer. Amen.